Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome to Hollywood and Levine. I am Ken Levine, your podcast host, and this is part two of my two-part interview with Steve Young. Now, last week we talked about a documentary that he was involved with, Bathtubs Over Broadway. If you missed part one after you listen to this, go back and check that out. This week we're going to talk about writing for David Letterman because Steve wrote for Dave for 25 years. We'll also get into what they're looking for in terms of new writers. You have to submit these packets. What goes into the packets? What do they look for? What are some of the things that they uh, they don't look for? Some of the traps that people fall into? A lot of great stuff this week Part two with Steve Young talking about the David Letterman show right here on Hollywood and Levine. Okay, now I want to get into your career and writing for David Letterman. You started out in Harvard, so you were like one of those guys, like all the Simpson writers who worked on the Harvard Lampoon, correct? Yeah, I... I grew up in Massachusetts, but actually didn't know that Harvard was in Massachusetts until I got the application. I was not uh, deeply tuned into that world. But once I got there and I found the Lampoon, the uh, humor magazine, I thought, oh, I want to try this. And it turned out this was a great home for me. Conan O'Brien was the president of the magazine when I got on it. And I thought, wow, this guy is impressive. Let's see what he's going to do. And can I be more like him? So there was uh, starting to be a, a a trend of people coming from the Lampoon and working at the Letterman Show or Saturday Night Live or whatever. I thought, well, maybe I could do that. And it took a few years. I was a bartender. I was scratching around uh, unemployed or barely employed and trying to figure out how to get my foot in the door. And I, I started getting a, a little writing work. And suddenly I'm at the Letterman Show. And as I said, my friend Steve O'Donnell hired me and uh, set me on a great path there. By the way, I mentioned Steve O'Donnell. He is in the finale of Bathtubs Over Broadway, the the final uh, sort of scene of the movie. We were able to bring in a lot of people who were meaningful to us on the Bathtubs team, and it was a great thrill for me to have Steve O'Donnell as part of the, the cast of characters who were rounded up at the end. But, uh, yeah, The Letterman Show, I was there for 25 years. And it, in that time, went from sort of the tail end of the 80s version of The Letterman Show 
by the end, it was the internet era, 2015, everything has to go viral, everything, Twitter, blah, blah, blah. So an enormous uh, change in eras that I, I was witnessing there in that time. When you started, Letterman was still at NBC, right? You were doing late night with David Letterman there? Yeah, uh, I started in 1990. He was at NBC for three more years, and then we switched over to CBS. Was Meryl Marco there? No, I've never met Meryl. Uh, I know seriously. Or huh. she was uh, well out the door by the time I got near Thirty Rock. Uh, I, I know her by reputation as a towering figure who largely invented the sensibility of the show, along with Dave himself. But, uh, yeah, she is somebody I'm well aware of and uh, hugely uh, impressed by, but I've never met her. So you were there during the whole Tonight Show saga of Dave versus Jay trying to get the Tonight Show and CBS. What was that like? It must have been sort of strange because every day there's different rumors and where are you going and how much pressure is there you know what what was that like being there during that period well we believed we had the i think everybody on the letterman staff thought well one way or another artistically or otherwise we, we believe we'll prevail because we have the right guy and the right show but it was nerve-wracking just this uh high-level business stuff going on that's behind closed doors. The worst of it that I remember was one day starting off from my apartment and going to the subway to take uh, the train down to Midtown to go to work. This was still the late, late in the NBC era. And the tabloid papers, I guess it was the New York Post, had a big splashy headline in all the newspaper boxes. The papers said, Dave dumps New York. Letterman to leave New York City, move show to Los Angeles, according to sources. And we got to work. Everyone piled into the offices. What is this? Can this be true? Where did this come from? And there was a a sort of urgent staff meeting in which we were told, don't believe this. This is far from decided. In fact, it's probably not happening. It turned out, of course, no, it never did happen. We stayed in New York, but just the the rumors were so... uh, pervasive and contradictory it was a very confusing time and life would have been different for me if i'd moved to la i'm sure it would have worked out but i've always uh, been glad to be in new york so had he gotten the tonight show nbc would have insisted that he do it in los angeles probably because uh the, the carson era had sort of locked that in as how you do it although mm-hmm. that Ironically, has, now the Tonight Show is in yeah. New York. That's right, which is where it started. So there's that precedence as well. But I think that Dave was so uh, reverent of Johnny and his legacy, he would have been very happy to take over in L.A. if that had been uh, the plan. I think that would have been fine. Right. And, of course, Letterman spent a lot of time in Los Angeles you know, as he started his stand-up career, I saw him many times at, at the comedy store. So it probably wouldn't be the worst thing in the world if he had to move to L.A. to be on The Tonight Show. All right. One time, I guess it was after the dust settled and we uh, 
were staying in New York on CBS. That had been determined. Uh, At one point I said to him, Dave, uh, I just want to say thanks for uh, keeping us all together here in New York. I, I do appreciate that. And he said, well, you know, you can make a nice life out in L.A., there, there was a part of him that, as you say, he knew that world and, and could have done fine there. But uh, the way it shook out, uh, we we had a great long run in New York with taking advantage of all the life around us on Broadway and 53rd Street and in the heart of a real city, which I don't think we would have had in Burbank. So walk me through a typical day of writing for David Letterman. It's a Tuesday what time right. do you arrive? What's the timeline and how does it work? All right. It's a random Tuesday somewhere in the final few years of the show. Okay. Uh, I get to work probably around 9 a.m. Uh, on the subway, I've jotted down a few ideas to pitch in the morning meeting about uh, something going on in the news or pop culture or whatever for fake commercials or news interrupts or some live thing to happen. So we have our writers meeting. Everybody comes in with their pitches. Very congenial, supportive room, I will say. Uh, not always the case with every TV show, but a lot of people who've been there for a long time. And is Dave like, in the room? Dave is not in the room. Uh, there is a head writer. There were a few over different eras. Uh, Dave did not usually come to meetings like that. Uh, so uh, the writers and the head writer would sort through a big pile of pitches. The head writer would say, let's do this, 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 that, and this. You write that, you write that. People go off to write their little scripts for their bits. Some of them are going to be sprinkled through the monologue in the first act. Some of them might be something in the second act that happens at the desk or out on the street, whatever. So we produce a pile of scripts and then hurry to produce completed videos. Like if it's a oh, I saw a weird thing on the CNN last night. Look look at this, Paul. And we'd put together a fake CNN bit or whatever that means. Footage, uh, stock music, graphics, voiceover, edit room. The writer goes to the edit room and and oversees the production of all this with the edit staff and the associate directors. So we heard it. It sounds like fun. It It, it it sounds like fun. It was great adrenaline because you're racing against time every day. You have an idea at 9 a.m. At 4 p.m., you have to be ready to show it to Dave in a finished state. And then if things go well and he likes it, an hour later, the audience is laughing at it. And a few hours after that, it's on TV at night. It was crazy how compressed the time frame on this stuff was. And then along the way, you're writing top 10 lists throughout the day. I ran the monologue for 11 years, so that was a big part of my day, seeing the monologue jokes coming in, what Dave is picking, what we need more of, working with the cue card guy, getting them in an order, rewriting, uh, running through it with Dave until he was happy with it. It it was a high-speed process every day, and it was a blessing and a curse because some days you couldn't quite finish your, your brilliant bit in time, and it had to be lost and left aside. Maybe you had a great day and you had a triumphant thing that the audience loved and Dave was excited about. But the next day, it's a blank slate again. You have to start all over again. There's nothing left from yesterday to ride on. You have to reinvent the wheel again every day. So somebody would come up with an idea for like a, a video, like you said, 
and they would spend all day editing and the sound and the music, etc. And they would put this together at four o'clock. Dave comes in, looks at it, goes, nah. Right. And then it yeah. just gets tossed. Like you might have seven completed things that day because the, the, the production pipeline was so well figured out that we could produce a lot of stuff quickly at a pretty good level. And he would look at, let's say seven things. Maybe he'd like three of them. Maybe one of them he'd say, I'm not sure about this. Let's revisit that later. Sometimes he'd have notes that, uh, can we change the line here? Actually, can this part happen here? Can we get out earlier? And at seven minutes before the show started, you'd be running back to the edit room to try to get these changes done. And it was amazing how close we would cut it. And sometimes the top 10 list was like that too. He would uh, get a top 10 list. He would scratch out some jokes. A head writer would put in more. We think we'd got it. And then right before the show started, I don't know about this one. Can we try something else? And we would write a new top 10 list as the show was starting and phone entries down or email them down to the shack backstage. The head writer would be putting together a new top 10 list during the uh, commercial break right before Dave was supposed to read it. Sometimes those were great. You were just running on adrenaline and you just didn't have time to overthink it or edit it too much. You just poured it out. All right, let me put you on the spot. So Dave goes through this and he goes, no, this line doesn't work. This bit doesn't work. Um, Is he always right? Or are there times when you're going, God damn it, Dave, that's funny. That's fucking funny. That's a lot funnier than the thing you just pitched. It, well, I remember times when he definitely made things better. I mean, he was who he was, just this brilliant, comedic, witty mind. And he could cut past your fog sometimes and crystallize something beautifully. Uh, sometimes there were just uh, differences in sensibility. And we were all there because we more or less had his sensibility. But th- there were shadings within that. And sometimes you'd go in a direction too far that amused you but it wasn't really dave's thing so you just chalk it up to well uh we're not going to be there 100 percent of the time on on the same opinion every time but i like to think that i was there for a long time because i not only could hit the sensibility that he liked but maybe occasionally i showed him a crumb of something new that he didn't uh have before and maybe mm-hmm. yeah brought him to a few small Uh, new spaces of sensibility along the way. Over 25 years, you'd hope that I I contributed something. Well, I know talking to Carson writers that there were some Carson writers who were there a long time, and then there were a lot of writers that they recycled in and out. And for those young writers, it was just a terrifying uh, experience because they're trying to get stuff in and if they don't and if they don't get stuff in over a certain period of time they're fired so there's an enormous amount of pressure was it like that on your show yeah there were a lot of long-term people there and i turned out to be one of them but even then there were different times when i didn't feel really secure and the show changed over the years and I thought am I really still fitting in here and luckily I was able to stay the course and continue uh riding that roller coaster but there were as you say uh 
probably younger writers who just thought, this is my test. Am I in or out? Am I funny or not funny? And that's not entirely the way to think about it. We had some writers who didn't last long at Letterman who went on to brilliant success elsewhere because Mm -hmm. they were funny. They just weren't necessarily fitting in the slot that you have to fit in in a show like that. Was Dave accessible? Um, yes and no. Uh, I, I saw him a lot because I was working with the monologue and I think some of uh, the younger writers probably didn't see him so much, but uh, he was protective of the show in a way. Uh, I'll mention bathtubs over Broadway uh, since it came out of my work for him on the show with these records and record collection, he did take certain satisfaction in this whole project and this phenomenon blowing up out of this weird little thing that was part of the record collection bit. He never had allowed any film crew or video crew to shoot in the offices, really, or backstage. And for the documentary, we were very honored that we were the first people ever allowed to do that. Oh, so very cool. among the other charms of bathtubs over Broadway is the fact that you get this exclusive look into the inner workings of the show in the last couple of years of the, the Letterman show's life. And we're, we're very uh, honored that Dave had that uh, vote of confidence in us. I remember reading the biography of Letterman and it talked about how incredibly hard he was on himself did that continue throughout the run? Yeah, I think that is uh, inextricable from his particular kind of genius. He has this restless, curious, inquisitive mind, and probably the flip side of that is a reluctance to be satisfied with a lot of stuff, but himself certainly up there. And you'd you'd see him do something hilarious, and you'd say, "Dave, that was that was unbelievably funny." And he'd be, oh, "I don't know, I don't know." He'd be self-deprecating about it. Uh, so it could be tough. You sometimes wished he would just enjoy the the this the great moments of it more. Uh, well, that but- was going to be my next question. Did you get the sense that he was enjoying himself? At all. You know, you hear these performers will say, uh, yeah, but once I get out there, uh, that's what I live for. I'm feeding off the audience. And yeah, that's what it's all about. Uh, Did you ever get the sense that that Dave got much pleasure in any of this? Oh, absolutely. And as you say, feeding off the energy of an audience, uh, it changed from night to night, what sort of audience you'd get and how all the mystical parts mesh together. But there were there were nights when just everything was working and and it was a joy and it must have been a s- unbelievable thrill for him and and if you'd write something and produce something that really tickled him and he he l- really laughed at it and was excited to show it to the audience that that made you feel really great cuz he'd been doing it for so long he'd seen so much it was so hard to be truly excited about uh comedy material on the show if you got that flash of excitement out of him it it made you feel like you'd really accomplished something seems tough if you're involved in the monologue because you're only as good as your last joke 
Um, would there be nights when things just didn't work and he'd come back after the show and go, Jesus, Steve, what? <laughs> you're killing me here. He he was really uh, quite uh, good to me and he knew that with a volume business like this and the volume of jokes and volume of shows that uh, not everyone was going to be your favorite but uh, he, he knew that, I, and I, I, I would, I think I told him at some point, I'm, we're just trying to give you what you need and don't, don't worry about our feelings. And, and that's the way you have to go into it is that, I mean, there were monologue writers that we had for a while who didn't work out, who would call me after the show and say, why didn't he pick this joke? This was a good joke. Why didn't he pick that joke? This was a funny joke. And I just thought, you can't agonize about all these individual jokes. Sure. You can't pick apart why it didn't go or he didn't pick it or it didn't work or whatever. You just, the the blessing and the curse of moving on and doing another show the next day. We'll try it again tomorrow. David Isaacs and I wrote the Cheers episode where Cliff wrote a joke for Johnny Carson for The Tonight Show. And uh, and it was was fun. We had we had to write the monologue. So and we we had the Tonight Show audience. They just stayed after a show. And so we had to write like three good jokes and then a bad joke that Cliff had written. And something that we thought this would really be funny was we had Cliff stand up and say, you didn't read it right. Uh-huh. You know, telling Johnny Carson how to do a joke. You know, a mailman telling Johnny Carson how to do a joke. Um, I assume that rarely happened with you guys, that if Dave couldn't get a laugh, it wasn't because, well, Dave, you, you hit the wrong word there, right? No, Dave was uh, obviously hugely professional, and he he knew how to, take a joke and tweak it for maximum effect in his delivery and his delivery over time became more and more conversational. He'd take a five minute sort of long loping uh, roundabout set up to what it was going to be a very quick joke, but he just wanted to talk to the audience and have fun with it. So he was great at that sort of performing of, of material and making it more than it would have been in somebody else's hands. What I will say about Johnny Carson uh, Johnny, after he retired, would send jokes to Dave for the monologue. I don't know if you know this, mm-hmm. but uh, one one of my duties uh, when I first was running the monologue was uh, to take these pages that would come in. Uh, Johnny would call Dave's office and have one of his assistants transcribe his his joke, and then I would get this page of a joke from Johnny Carson, put it in the monologue, and uh, they were not surprisingly very very good very solid very professional he he had it in his bones exactly how to do this and he took great pleasure in sending these to dave who in turn took great pleasure in sending johnny carson 75 dollars each time he <laughs> but after johnny passed away i got the call uh dave wants to do an entire monologue of of the jokes that johnny sent in so I went back through the files and pulled them all out and we arranged uh, a, a whole monologue 
of jokes that may, may have seemed a little odd for the audience to hear because they were about topics that weren't necessarily that sure. big. But Dave, without any explanation, came out and started that monologue, and the jokes were doing fine and getting laughs. It was only after the first commercial, and we came back, and he was at the desk. He said, I want to tell you folks something. All those jokes that I did at the start of the show to, uh, this evening... Those were jokes that Johnny Carson contributed to the show. Uh, we 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 loved Johnny and we valued him and we took such great pleasure in the fact that he wanted to contribute jokes here. So I wanted to just uh, allow those jokes to go out one more time and 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 it was beautifully done and, and touching. That's very cool. Now, do you tape the other late night shows and check out their monologues? Because I imagine you're all doing the same topics, the same topics of the day. So uh, are you checking out going, oh, God, yeah, Kimmel's, yeah, Kimmel's joke there was, was better. Or, oh, God, ours was a lot funnier than Leno's. You'd get a, a certain amount of overlap. You hoped you wouldn't get it word for word. But, yeah, you had similar kinds of comedy brains all chewing over the same uh, current events. You're, you're going to have a fair amount of similarity. You just don't want to like do a whole complicated bit. That's exactly the same. Once did, in a you while, ever, did you ever go, man, these, who wrote these jokes for Kimmel? Let's get that guy. Uh, I didn't, I was not closely monitoring this and I was generally feeling like we had a, an excellent uh, a, array of writers that I was happy with. Once in a while, Dave would say, oh, let's get some new blood in here. And we'd get uh, uh, somebody who was well-known from something like uh, we had Alan Zweibel for a while, the uh, mm-hmm. sure. better live comedy legend. He he was uh, contributing some monologue for a while. So there was always an interest in just uh, not sticking eternally with the same voices he he was interested in new voices but we had great people so it wasn't like out of desperation was there more diversity towards the end were there more women on staff towards the end uh yes although i will say it was uh never a sure thing that you'd have women applying for the jobs uh there were so few people that we read that that we thought were ready to work on the show. And if, if uh, 95 out of a hundred of them are men, uh, the odds that you're going to find exciting uh, women writers is kind of low, but we, we were looking, we were were thinking about that uh, and and trying to uh, do the right thing to push, move the needle, get a little better balance. And to apply for a writing job on Letterman, you had to put together a packet, right? Describe what the packet consisted of. I think that if somebody called the show and said, I want to do a writing submission, you didn't have to have an agent or a manager. We liked the fact that we were ready to hear voices that had not been filtered through the system already. But yeah, I think there was like, all right, here's two top 10 topics, write some jokes, top 10 list jokes on these topics, Uh, write a couple of uh, bits, uh, take place in the theater or out on the street, write some, I I don't remember all the details, but there there was a little sort of assignment list of different kinds of things. Mm -hmm. 
you know, when you're trying to break into sitcoms and you have to write a spec pilot or a spec script of an existing show, you can send that pilot to 15 shows. But in the world of late night, you need a separate packet for Letterman, a separate packet for Seth Meyer, a separate packet for Fallon. It's got to be really tough on young writers because they have to write seven of these instead of just one. There's probably some overlap, but yeah, you're trying to hit a voice and prove that you can slot right in quickly and be a, a working part of a team that provides this material in this voice. For us, the gold standard was always to find someone who could do that kind of voice of what we already do, but add an extra dimension that no one else had that Dave would respond to, wedge the window of possibility open a little bit around some edge because we already were pretty good at doing what we did. And we were just looking for new writers who could do that and a little bit more that no one else had. What are some of the big mistakes that young writers make in applying? Uh, Probably just imitating too closely what's already been done. Because like I was saying, we, we already know how to do what we've already done. What haven't we done that we can't imagine that only your particular mind can uh, supply? So uh, that is a very narrow tightrope to walk conceptually. What's never been done on this show before, that could be done and that Dave would like to do. If you can solve that mystery, then, then you really got something. One time I had lunch with Dave and Meryl Marco. This was probably in the late 80s in Los Angeles. And Dave was very pleasant, but very quiet. Uh, is that normal? I imagine you've had, you know, social occasions with him. Um, maybe it's just he didn't know me or whatever, but he just seemed very quiet and reserved. Well, it's probably like a, a lot of people. You He would probably warm up over time if he got to know you better. I think that's fairly universal and human. Uh, I, I wouldn't say that I uh, was a close friend or knew him that well, but he was comfortable with me over time. And, and uh, I, I think probably a lot of comedy people do have that interior life that could come off as shy uh, and you might be uh, glowing incandescently on the stage in front of hundreds or thousands of people and quieter in a smaller setting. I remember reading, maybe it was Ed McMahon said about uh, Johnny Carson, comfortable in front of 10 million people, uncomfortable in front of 10 people. Yeah, interesting, interesting. Well, you guys did such great work, such inspiring work for so many years. And as somebody who has been a huge fan of David Letterman's shows since his morning show on NBC, um, it you know hours and hours of of great material and thank you, man. Appreciate it. Oh, thank you. Uh, it is uh, amazing to me to look back at twenty five years of shows with Letterman and 
what does it all add up to? I'm sure I've forgotten 99.9% of what I've written or what was on the show, but, but it is a great uh, thing to have been a part of. And then it added this surprise wrinkle to my life of this whole uh, industrial musicals adventure, which has rolled out with this uh, phenomenal movie, which keeps finding new people. So uh, my Letterman adventures in that sense are continuing. Great. Steve, thanks very much. Appreciate it. Again, Bathtubs Over Broadway. It's on Netflix. Oh, what did you say? Uh, Amazon, yeah, iTunes. iTunes, probably some other things like Napster. Google. I don't know. Nine million. Yeah. It, 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 may, uh, it may be on your uh, microwave oven if you've got one of the new models. Was I right? Great guest, Steve Young talking about the David Letterman Show. And that will do it for this week on Hollywood and Levine. Our thanks, as always, to Adam and Susie Meister-Butler, to Howard Hoffman, to John Wolfert, to Bruce and Jason Miller. I am available on email, and I will write you back. HollywoodLevine at Outlook.com. That is HollywoodLevine at Outlook.com. You can follow me on Twitter. You can also follow me on Instagram, Hollywood and Levine, where I have been uh, doling out some of my cartoons lately. So if you're interested in those doodles, please follow me on Instagram, Hollywood and Levine. Thanks so much for listening. More next week right here on Hollywood and Levine.